Hello, my name is Garrison Lovely, and I'm not that interesting, but this is the most interesting people I know. Conversations on science, ethics, and politics. Today's guest is Marcus Davis. Marcus is the co-founder and lead researcher at Rethink Priorities, a nonprofit conducting foundational research on neglected causes within the effective altruism movement. Marcus also co-founded Charity Entrepreneurship and Charity Science Health. Rethink Priorities has put out a lot of impactful research on topics like nuclear war, invertebrate sentience, and ballot initiatives, in addition to taking on the crucial task of conducting the annual effective altruism survey. They've managed to do a lot with an annual budget of less than half a million dollars and are accepting donations. Residents of the United States, UK, Canada, Germany, and Switzerland can make tax-deductible donations at rethinkpriorities.org donate. The link will also be in the show notes. In this episode, we discuss Rethink Priorities Goals, How Much We Should Worry About Nuclear War, Fish Stocking, that's S-T-O-C-K, ballot measures for passing progressive policies and animal welfare protections, recent ballot measures on psychedelic decriminalization, determining the sentience of animals, whether octopuses are aliens, who makes up the effective altruism movement, how to reach people who aren't young STEM grads, how less effective interventions can still be improvements over the status quo, the ways in which effective altruism doesn't reflect society at large, and steps that could be taken to rectify that, and what rethink priorities can do with your money. I'd say most of this conversation is uh, interesting to a general audience, but the f- about an hour in, we discuss the effective altruism survey and results there. And that conversation will probably be only interesting to people already in the effective altruism movement. Here is Marcus Davis. Marcus, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So let's just start off with uh, what is the goal for Rethink Priorities? We want to do uh, neglected tractable research that's relevant for uh, decision makers at organizations, uh, whether that be funders or uh, animal organizations or uh, people working in long-termism. Uh, and broadly, we're also looking at like uh, gathering information for the EA movement as a whole. Uh, and we do a lot of that through the EA survey. But yeah, that's that's the basic pitch. Cool. So this is research on topics that are pretty out there, I would say, <laughs> but they fall within one of the broader effective altruism cause areas typically, right? Yeah. So uh, some of our work has been, uh, I guess you could describe it as relatively out there, but uh, very broadly, we want to bring a lot more information to within intervention research. Uh, so instead of trying to do cross comparisons between, say, global poverty and um, existential risk, uh, we think uh, there's a lot of space, uh, particularly within animal welfare, um, to do deeper dives into areas that people haven't done before and to bring uh, new possible interventions on the map that people haven't considered. Cool. And just for the listener at home, like a cross a cause comparison would be looking at the cost effectiveness of saving somebody's life with anti-malarial bed nets in sub-Saharan Africa versus like the equivalent amount of chicken years averted from donating to corporate campaigns for um, going cage-free or or something like that. Yeah, um, I'd say uh, if you you had to make me guess, uh, we're relatively unlikely, uh, or I really would probably say most people are relatively unlikely to uh, convince someone that their favorite cause shouldn't be their favorite cause, but you may bring new information to bear that they hadn't considered. Uh, you may say uh, discover, oh, here's a huge, entirely new promising intervention within some field they, uh, whether it's their favorite or not, uh, they just hadn't thought of it as a thing. Uh, and additionally, uh, outside the global health space in particular, um, there's just a lot of room to gather tons of more evidence. Um, where, say, in global health, it may be decades of research looking at some like 
uh, topic and people have, uh, for generations to get PhDs in that field. Uh, there's nothing like this in animal welfare. Uh, there's so much more to be learned. Um, it's really uh, it's early stages. Yeah, yeah. So could you just give an overview of some of the topics that uh, you guys have researched? Sure. Um, so uh, within animal welfare, we've looked at farm animals. Uh, we've done uh, cost effective analysis of, of corporate campaigns for uh, improving uh, both egg laying hens and broiler welfare. Um, and um, uh, we've done uh, a breakdown of that in addition to the cost effective estimate, just looking at uh, where were these commitments made, uh, when were they made, uh, what locations, what uh, industries were those. And uh, additionally, uh, in the farm animal welfare space, uh, we looked at uh, uh, we looked a bit at uh, fish stocking, which is uh, uh, this is bordering on farmed welfare, uh, but it's broadly the practice of raising fish uh, in hatcheries to then later be released into the wild, whether it's for commercial or recreational purposes. Um, uh, outside of uh, farm animal welfare, we've also done other things uh, involving animals, uh, particularly looking at wild animal welfare. Uh, Kim Cuddington, who's a ecologist who works for us, has done some work examining uh, life history and what this, uh, what uh, various types of life history of uh, say uh, some some animals have um, some animals have uh, lives where many of them die very young or uh, uh, or, or many of them uh, relatively speaking a lot of them die off uh, before reaching adulthood and uh, that this type of thing suggests that maybe uh, their lives overall are or not bad or is it that like because some portion of them die in starvation that it would be, it would be not great to be the species. So we're trying to get some uh, introductory examination of that type of uh, topic. Uh, so that's just something going on wild animal welfare. Uh, additionally, um, outside of uh, wild animals, uh, perhaps uh, what you were suggesting is more out there is looking at uh, gathering all the scientific evidence uh, we could around the topic of invertebrate sentience. Uh, so this was a broad approach of looking at uh, uh, 12 different invertebrate taxa uh, and on a list of 53 features it ended up being uh, what's the scientific evidence say that each of those uh, each of those taxa uh, how likely are they possess this feature uh, from a, on a scale of like uh, very unlikely to very likely uh, then we gather all that information put it in uh, um, interactive table and uh, you can click through and look down at the scientific evidence we've uh, uh, we found to to uh, back up that uh, determination Cool. cool. Uh, so I, I definitely want to come back to a bunch of those um, there's also work you've done on nuclear uh, nuclear weapons as well, right? Yes. Uh, so we've done work looking at uh, uh, some baseline uh, nuclear weapons risk. Uh, so uh, we want to build up to evaluate uh, the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. Uh, but in order to do that, we have to have a, uh, a good sense of how likely uh, some of the just baseline conditions are, like how bad is nuclear war if it were to happen? Uh, how likely is it? Uh, which of the wars that we should be most, uh, uh, I was gonna say afraid of, but perhaps most concerned about? Um, I, I guess that's uh, tilting my, my cars. Uh, nuclear war, were it to happen, seems to be, seems like it would be bad. Yeah, that, that's kind of my ingoing <laughs> hypothesis. So, like, what new information, I guess, uh, are we learning from this type of research? Yes. So, um, new information, what we were approaching is in a very, I guess, EA manner. Uh, so, like, let's rank the, the, let's rank the, the the possible nuclear conflicts that would be most um, uh, devastating on scale of like how large are the nuclear arsenals? How likely are they, are they to use them? How large are the populations? Uh, how how likely are they to target civilians versus uh, uh, military targets? Um, and using that type of analysis um, uh, on the approach of also on the question of um, um, were were um, nuclear war to happen, 
how many people are likely to die in, in trying to synthesize uh they've been because this is a this is a popular topic there have been a lot of uh, estimates to try to assess how likely nuclear war would be um and you try try to instead of trying to make our own uh from from scratch uh just try to aggregate uh expert predictions in this space and give a sense to uh give a sense to the ea community what um what we we think is uh likely to happen or excuse me what what the ongoing experts suggest is likely to happen Cool, yeah, so nuclear war seems to be one of those things where it's probably the most famous example of like a doomsday scenario that people would think of, other than like an asteroid hitting the planet. Mm -hmm. um, but with ineffective altruism, it seems somewhat neglected as a topic. And my guess is that it's because nuclear war is unlikely to kill everybody alive, which from an effective altruism kind of utilitarian perspective, killing everybody or almost everybody is like radically different right because if you kill everybody there's no chance of humans like building civilization again whereas if you kill almost everybody there's still some chance and like that alone makes it much much better than the full extinction risk um that being said killing almost everybody or even like <laughs> a third of the you know planet's population major population centers and in some of the most developed countries in the world would probably be a really terrible thing um and make other existential risks possibly more likely um so i, I guess if somebody is caring only about existential risks and does not think that nuclear war is likely to kill everybody on you know alive today um why should they care about this yeah, so um, this uh, this question of whether or not everyone would die uh, was act, uh, somewhat uh, central to the question of uh, Luis Rodriguez, who did this work for us. Um, somewhat central to the question of uh, how bad would nuclear winter be? Um, because um, broadly speaking, these are uh, forecasts about uh, things that things that. Uh, haven't happened. There, a lot, the, even the, the expert forecasts in this domain are rather uncertain because of the nature of we don't we haven't yet had examples of uh, of uh, large scale nuclear war. Uh, so um, you, you're trying to do your best with the forecast, and um, very broadly, it it seems uh, it seems plausible that uh, uh, nuclear war wouldn't kill everyone, but that's based on uh, forecasts which are themselves inherently uncertain. Uh, there's uh, a lot of talk that, well, at the worst case scenario, uh, I believe uh, that high end of these estimates was something like 7 billion people would die, but like a contingent in Australia and New Zealand would probably survive. Um, uh, how certain are we that that is the case? I don't know. In fact, this is the area of research I would like to see follow up on. Gotcha. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I'd imagine there's also like rebuilding complex human civilization following nuclear war on a planet where a lot of the resources have already been stripped seems like a much, much larger challenge. Yes. Um, however, I, I don't really have uh, I don't have strong opinions about the feasibility of doing so. Um, this is just definitely something where I want to look more into it and uh, try to get a sense of like, is there extensive literature on this topic? Um, uh, and whether or not um, uh, that literature exists uh, for a range of scenarios. So uh, nuclear weapon is uh, one possible way we could nearly kill us, kill ourselves. Uh, that scenario is very different from, uh, say, trying to recover from a bio-risk, uh, where it might be a pandemic and certain things would go down, but other things would remain standing. Uh, whereas nuclear war may, say, uh, darken the planet for a while, um, relatively speaking, like, 
uh, I guess metaphorically, metaphorically and literally darken the planet uh, to the point where crops don't grow. Um, and that coming back from that would be a different challenge. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, I, I, I'm, uh, I'm rather uncertain about like what what the what the the way I guess uh, what the best way we can know like uh, with with any confidence how likely we are to come back from something like that. Yeah, and I was reading these posts. Uh, Luis is a friend of mine, and it's really great work, which I'll, I'll link in the show notes. Um, and I was just struck by when reading the parts about the United States and Russia, how much investment has been made and just like finding more elaborate ways to kill as many people as possible uh, and to take out like these hardened nuclear missile silos and hide your nukes in submarines and in planes and like just the sheer level of resources devoted to, to just this activity. Um, and it's it's pretty depressing and uh, it's just like a sad thought to think of what that ingenuity and level of investment could have gone towards if it had been to try and help people instead of kill everybody. Yeah, it is sad. Um, uh, I guess uh, to to take that perspective from the perspective of the people doing so, uh, this is primarily in U.S. and Russia, but to some extent in China as well. Uh, compiling large nuclear arsenals um they thought they were doing the good thing right so um perhaps this is a good time to reflect on the fact that like everyone in their own story is the good guy and they envision themselves like the reason we're, we're gathering all this is to prevent the other side from killing everyone and if we can prevent the other side from killing everyone then the rest of the world will survive um I'm not saying this is correct <laughs> in fact I don't believe this is correct uh but no nonetheless it's um it's uh, yeah. I mean, it just it just is depressing that that humans have spent uh, tens of billions of dollars on trying to kill the other side in the war. Um, but uh, I guess if you take some uh, take some topical perspective, um, it's uh, it's similarly depressing that humans have spent tens of billions of dollars uh, investing in how best can we farm animals in a way that doesn't take their welfare considerations seriously um so uh I, I guess i guess it's not that different from things like that to me yeah i mean it comes down to like bad incentives right uh, arms race is a particularly bad incentive where you know you're just trying to one up the other side and there's not really a concern for welfare or for like alternative investments um and you know each party is playing the same game and nobody really wins as a result uh, farmed factory farming is a similar situation where you know you're just trying to optimize for profit and the conditions of the animals or the people working in the farms is just like not really a uh, something that's taken into consideration and so you just like create this system that optimizes for one thing only at the expense of everything else yeah i mean that's basically the that's one of the issues one of the key issues i, I wouldn't uh say it's the only one um there's always um in addition to arms rights, there's always a uh, initial uh, like the initial reason why nuclear weapons exist. I guess the dynamics of the arms race that you're typically thinking about this was uh, just to win one war. It wasn't even in consideration of like what will we do down the line. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean sometimes there I, I tend to be uh, take a structural view of uh, humanity that it is incentives that drive. Uh, a lot of behavior we think is appalling. Um, so, 
Yeah, you you try hard to change those incentives to to, to change uh, at least say in democracies to, to change those incentives away from uh, say uh, nuclear first use. Yeah, that's something Daniel Ellsberg I think writes about. Um, he has a book out on this topic of like how we could actually not unilaterally disarm, but like create a saner policy towards nuclear weapons and work towards a non-nuclear future. Yes, um, this is. I mean, I think this is a major contention, uh, obviously not just within effective altruism, but very broadly, obviously Ellsberg's book, but then also uh, I believe several political candidates uh, this for uh, 2020 election have suggested this is something that's on their mind. Um, and uh, it's this is a topic that, um, I mean, I'm gonna show my age, I was gonna say, when I was growing up, uh, perhaps wasn't as much on the radar of, uh, uh, of uh, mainstream politics is kind of taken for granted that uh, the policy as it existed should basically stand. I mean, this is again very contingent in the in the dynamics of within the space of uh, within the space of uh, mainstream political discourse. Not in there, there's been nuclear arms experts warning for decades. This is that this this practice. Uh, some of several of these practices are, uh, seem uh, uh, extremely unhelpful at best, or, or and extremely risky at worst. Yeah, yeah, and I found myself reading just the assessments of how many nuclear weapons would survive a first strike if you hid them on submarines or in airplanes or in hardened silos, and I was just like doing the math, and I'm like, oh, so I guess having thousands of warheads in like these scrambled positions actually does make sense, and I found myself like taking on the assumptions of the people planning this, which is like, well, we need more to you know get through the hardened silo and, and have a higher chance of destroying their weapons. And some of ours might get destroyed in the process. So like you need to have a, you know, a second strike capability. And, you know, if you're just looking at it from a like kind of like a video game or something, it makes perfect sense. And anyone who's played Civilization <laughs> at some point has probably taken the nuclear strategy. Um, because you're like, oh, well, I, I just need to beat the other guys. And like, if I can get nuclear weapons first and use them, like, it doesn't really matter what other capabilities they have. Um, and yeah, I don't know. It's just disturbing when people aren't really thinking about the welfare of other humans, other animals, and the other end of the line. And that seems to be kind of one of the themes in, in the work of Rethink Priorities is that there's a ton of untrod ground in the sentience and, and welfare of like, the vast majority of animals, for example, because mm -hmm. nobody's really thinking about that perspective. They're thinking about like maybe the ecology of of these animals and like you know how they operate within nature, um, but that really isn't the relevant question from a moral standpoint. Yeah, um, uh, I'd say if I had to like frame uh the 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 broad decision to like create organization it's largely based on that that uh there there are um the classic example is there are tons of there's tons of money uh relative to uh the amount going to farm animals going to all animal charities um and even within um uh organizations that are focused on uh say like mammals or something is still not going to where most of the mammals are or uh even if you think a lot about uh farmed animals uh the the largest uh by quantity the largest uh group of animals that's farmed is fish it's not chickens or cows um and uh there there's tons of uh tons of places where just like baseline research on uh uh what's what are the numbers what are the conditions what could we do uh could be valuable uh for example um and um 
in the space of uh, farm fish, uh, there are hundreds of, of fish that have farmed uh, hundreds of different, excuse me, hundreds of different species, billions of individuals um, every year. But among those species, only uh, say like around 20 of them have an, have a humane uh, solid method uh, approved, approved, backed up by some scientific research. Uh, so uh, this suggests that there's, even if you wanted to do good, even if you were a company like, oh, what's the best thing we could do uh, to make sure the end of life isn't that painful? Uh, if you, if you, unless you're willing to go out and do the research yourself, there's just not a lot you can, I mean, there's not a lot you can do with great confidence. Um, and uh, this is, uh, from, from a global perspective, this is, uh, you could say it's bizarre, but really it's just, uh, the incentives of the companies is just like to maximize profit uh, and to uh, sell, sell food as cheaply as possible. Um, but um, if you're an animal advocate, um, I think this is just perhaps a outside of mind thing where most people have just haven't really considered it. Uh, and because of that, I think there's a lot of opportunity to do uh, research to inform, again, inform funders and animal organizations, hey, have you considered uh, looking at this topic? Yeah, I mean, with a lot of the farmed animal welfare, uh, just the standard practices are not designed to inflict suffering necessarily, although that is often the byproduct of, of it. And, and there are certainly cases of deliberate abuse, but it's more like it hasn't really been considered or, as you mentioned, there's just not a known strategy for doing it better. Um, so I guess you touched on this, but uh, fish stocking is something you sp uh, spoke about last night. Mm. Something I really hadn't thought very much about at all. I remember when I was a little kid going fishing in some pond or lake and um, my dad told me that it was like stocked with fish and I thought it was kind of like a strange thing to do. Um, you know, like, aren't there already fish in the lake or like, <laughs> why would you add more? Um, but it turns out that like there are some what, over 100 billion fish are stocked each year. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Something uh, Solis, who did the research on this topic for us uh, earlier this year, uh, it suggested that there's something like uh, 30 to 140 billion uh, fish stocked, uh, raising hatcheries to be released into the wild every year. Um, uh, primarily, this is for commercial uh, purposes, uh, so uh, released into oceans, uh, and so that later people can catch them uh, and sell them to humans. Uh, but it's also a lot of it's done for recreational purposes. This is just uh, fish that are stocked in rivers and lakes. And uh, the basic idea is to to get people to come to the lake, to get people to enjoy the fishing experience at the lake or the river. Uh, and one way to do that is to make fishing easy. This is uh, from the perspective of, say, uh, uh, the, I guess the nature or forestry groups that are engaged in these practices, they're thinking, oh, how can we improve our, how can we improve our bottom line or increase our, our, tourist, our tourist rate? And they aren't really thinking at all about the, the welfare of the animals that they're using in order to gain that edge. Yeah, and, and so would one of the interventions here be like, these fish are often raised in, uh, you know, tanks with like minimal, um, environmental stimulus and they're just being fed food that's like you know not alive in most cases right and, and they're just being released into the wild and presumably a good chunk of them just don't know how to survive right yeah I, i'd say this is probably a bigger concern again this is uh, uh somewhat uncertain um but it's probably a bigger concern for recreational fish that are raised um uh tend to be raised uh older um and um 
uh, in release, uh, I guess, closer to a full-fledged adulthood, at which point, um, uh, if you're not forged for like a, the first year of your expected life of three years, um, uh, it's going to be very difficult for you to learn how to survive on your own if you've been literally fed uh, every day of your life. Um, and uh, given that it's it's uh, perhaps why they they grow them larger because they just want they want to uh, be in a position where um, uh, they don't have to hope that they they support themselves down the line. Uh, again, this is for largely for recreational fish. So if you're uh, you're trying to catch. If you're if you're trying to encourage fishermen, you don't want to give them uh, fingerlings or I'm sorry, fingerlings are a very small uh, type of fish or or, or fry, which is even uh, younger. Um, yeah, you, you want them to have things that are comfortable to catch, and so uh, it's you're you're not really concerned with the welfare of the animal uh, leading up to or immediately after release. It's just all about what is the, what are fishermen going to catch. Yeah, yeah, and and so like. Um, curious would an intervention that would maybe be supported by both industry if they were to know about it and rethink priorities or something that would be at least worth exploring uh creating conditions where that are closer to the natural environment where fish are like more likely to survive into adulthood you'd have to raise fewer of them and they would have like maybe a better life in the wild uh it's possible uh i don't really know this is a this is a good example of something where uh we did some research and we thought at the end uh th what's the best possible way to intervene to help these animals i i don't have a good sense um uh i think this our work here was closer to putting this on the radar of other um uh some other animal advocates who are potentially interested um this is information that uh hadn't been uh assembled even though uh, collectively uh the numbers are are comparable to uh farm fish more broadly that are raised for human consumption and uh greater than or probably greater than um uh, animals uh, land animals slaughtered every year um so yeah I, i'd say i'm i'm very uncertain about uh whether that would would actually succeed and i'm also uncertain about whether or not if say uh we reduce the number of uh fish that are stocked whether or not uh uh aquaculture uh, farm fish would uh increase to offset uh even perceived downsides of of reducing the number of fish stocks so uh given i'm i'm i think that fish Farm fish would probably live not great lives, uh, and I'm, I'm I'm more uncertain about fish that are stocked for uh, being released into the wild. But I'm, I, I still don't think they probably lead great lives. So uh, I'd be uncertain about making that trade off. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, this is such a untested ground that we don't really know so many different things. Um, but it's kind of incredible. The person working on this, how how long did he spend on, on this research? Um. Two or three months, um, I think that's about right. Um, yeah, not much longer than that. Uh, so this was, uh, I'd say this is a rather preliminary uh, gathering. This is uh, largely one individual, um, of course, uh, uh, reviewed by the team and myself um, and others. He tried to get outside experts and people working on fish in the animal welfare space uh, took over the work, but very broadly, this is uh, uh, maybe a hundred person hours. Uh, from the as a lead researcher, that's that's not very much. Well, actually, that's that's not right. Um, maybe a couple hundred person hours. Yeah, cool. So I mean, because it's so um, unknown, you can actually make a ton of progress just by putting like 
doing even a literature review, right? Yes. Um, this is actually something where, like, very structurally, I think I think a lot about this at Rethink Priorities, where we're trying not to take on uh, projects that uh, uh, there's both upsides for gathering information uh, where there's not been a lot of work done, but also in keeping projects short such that uh, you spend uh you can spend twice as long on something and not know if it's actually going to impact anything for example it's fish locking while i very much hope uh that other people take take note of it and i try to uh get the word out um it's still uncertain whether or not someone acting on this i guess that's the nature of being a research organization uh trying to get people to actually read and then uh act on your research yeah of course um so i guess one of the things that is i think a lot closer to actionable from a policy or strategic perspective is uh, your work on ballot initiatives. Mm -hmm. And so this is still ongoing, um, but I, I watched a presentation at Effective Altruism Global this year, um, which I'll, I'll put a link up in the show notes, uh, but I thought this was pretty exciting. Could you just like, give us a summary of that? Yes. Uh, so um, at a high level, we want, or we think uh, people in the animal welfare space or in EA more broadly haven't uh, haven't really considered the option for running ballot measures. So ballot measures are something uh, that can be run at the uh, state or local level. Uh, depending, on, this is, excuse me, this is going to be very U.S. skewed. Even though some of these things apply outside the United States, and I'm very interested in the topic. Um, uh, that caveat aside, um, ballot measures are something that can apply at the state or local level, uh, maybe a city or county, and which you can put uh, given a, a certain number of signatures, you can get a, a issue put on the ballot uh, this is possible i believe uh, at the state level it's possible in i believe 28 states um with some caveats around some of those are uh near impossible in practice um uh but you can gather uh some signatures uh and get your issue directly on the ballot so if you have you have popular will uh to get it passed you can get your issue passed uh in uh this is um this is an approach that has been taken by a number of, of movements uh so uh this is uh, uh, very broadly. It's been used of both for and against gay marriage. It's been used for uh, marijuana legalization. Um, actually, uh, the first first ones around this, uh, I think, was uh, late seventies. Uh, but it took, obviously got more popular in the nineties and early two thousands. Um, and it's something that's been used for uh, increasing the minimum wage or for uh, various uh, animal welfare uh, measures, even outside of uh, the specifics of farmed animals. Uh, yeah, it's an approach that is possibly valuable anytime you have the public on your side um and um uh and you want to make a big change that will otherwise be difficult to get through a legislator yeah and and so this has been uh used to great effect in recent years for some very progressive legislation uh even in states and even in cycles where democrats don't do particularly well uh there's often votes to ex increase minimum wage uh, restore voting rights to felons mm -hmm. uh legalize marijuana things of that nature so it strikes me that like people have a greater appetite for progressive politics and the Democratic Party has a bad brand seems to be my takeaway. <laughs> um, uh, I'd say that um, minimum wage increases, uh, at least recently, are I believe, undefeated. Um, at the state level. Uh, that doesn't mean every time someone had the idea to do so, they might have pulled out. But I think that's something, if you look at like Ballotpedia, I think it's uh, 22 and 0 or something like that. Um, and uh, similarly, um, uh, gay marriage uh, proceeded among these paths. However, it's very notable uh, that gay marriage is actually a good example of something where uh, people were trying it where they thought it would succeed. Uh, so that would mean uh, a bunch of conservative states uh, banned um, 
um, banned gay marriage um, in a bunch in in a, a smaller number of, of liberal states legalized gay marriage uh, in the since 2000 um, and those basically pr- proceeded along parallel tracks um, but on the broader topic of of there being a desire for a significant change um, uh, it's definitely true that marijuana legalization I believe is something like 26 to 24 uh, so even though uh, they had a lot of early failures uh, they kept pressing the message and uh, I think they've had uh, assuring successes in recent years um, but it, it, it's definitely the case that there are topics that if you look at say uh, legislators uh, both federal and state uh, you'd be unlikely to get to succeed um, that just have popular support in, in a state where you have uh, the ability to run a ballot measure, you can uh, perhaps circumvent the legislature. And and so some of the most exciting uh, ballot measures from an effective altruism perspective are ones, I think in California, and I, I'm forgetting some other states, might be Oregon, uh, for farmed animal welfare. Yeah, uh, California passed uh, Prop 12 uh, in uh, uh, 2018 um, and question three in Massachusetts uh, Oregon actually uh, agreed to a uh, agreed to a deal there's a negotiated negotiation um, uh, where uh, they, they're gonna the legislature just passed the bill um, that was going to do do most of what uh, uh, ballot measure would have done anyway um, but yeah, these uh, these bills are are, are banning uh, several common factory farming practices, uh, 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 banning battery cages for uh, egg laying hens, banning, banning gestation excuse me, banning gestation crates, um, and uh, uh, just doing the thing that say corporate campaigns have been trying to get done. Uh, of course, uh, these these work together, but doing the thing and making it uh, legally binding uh, for the whole state. Uh, usually these have a few year lack for implementation to allow uh, companies to catch up. Uh, but it's it's uh, it seems like uh, in, in the places where you can do so, this is perhaps one of the most cost effective things you could do to help the lives of animals. Yeah, and gestation crates are for farmed pigs and they don't allow them to turn around. So they spend their entire life standing kind of in one direction. Yeah, it's uh, just remarkably, unbelievably cruel. Yeah, especially when you consider how capable pigs are of uh, emoting and expressing uh, pain and, and, and joy and uh, thinking through problems and everything. Yeah, I, I, I honestly don't have I don't have much to add to that other than it's it's truly astonishing that uh, I guess it's again you can I can tell you a story about how this happened, but uh, the. The basic idea that the public doesn't like, like when they discover pigs are treated in these conditions where they live their whole life in uh, uh, a crate that's that's um, maybe uh, ten feet, but not even ten feet, eight feet by three feet or something like that, and they they can't turn around, and the only time they go to a larger the larger area is immediately to give birth and then back to that same crate. Uh, this is an appalling life for any individual, um, and. It's not that surprising in the abstract if you think about if you, if you inform the public this is what's going on a lot of people in the public are just appalled when they discover this uh they like to think of themselves uh uh excuse me they like to think that animals lead good lives and if you can inform them that no actually this isn't the case um you you have a good chance to say uh whatever whatever the, the legislature may think uh the public wouldn't stand for it yeah and and so uh one, one of the concerns i've heard about these measures in particular is that uh, the public doesn't like gestation crates when they hear about them, but without gestation crates, the price of pork, you know, goes up by like a very large factor, um, and then this will create like popular backlash and then a potential return to previous uh, standards. Is this something that you've looked into at all? 
Uh, I have not investigated this topic uh, very thoroughly. However, I can say uh, very broadly, this this uh, it's probably true that uh, that increasing uh, increasing the welfare conditions of animals sometimes will have an effect on price. Um, but this is a, this is an argument that you can make against improving welfare conditions for humans. Um, uh, you can make this argument against like, you know, if we if we free the slaves, uh, the labor costs will rise. So we shouldn't free the slaves. Uh, it's, it's a very poor argument uh, on, on structurally. Um, what matters, I think, is whether or not in practice, um, whether or not in practice, there would be actually be the backlash. Um, and that's uh, until I guess until I see it, I, I'm going to withhold judgment. Yeah. I mean, from a moral standpoint, um, I don't think it's right to raise animals for food um full stop conditions aside but from a strategic or tactical standpoint you know if, if you push for a reform that actually ends up being so effective and so costly that the backlash immediately undoes it like that that could be in the long run like not good for animal welfare oh definitely um and uh to clarify i i I agree that you wouldn't want to take, uh, say, a short-term gain that costs you significantly in the long term. Um, I, I guess I'm I am more skeptical that this would cost you significantly in the long term. Uh, it, you're making um, the the way this argument would have to work is uh, consumers want want this now, but in the future, if the prices increase thirty cent, they'll go. Actually, we should we can we're going to run a ballot initiative to undo that that. Uh, undo this measure to to change it back uh that's that strikes me as unlikely um it's um uh it's possible it's just it doesn't seem probable yeah i mean it could also happen through the legislature right you know if if people are voting on a ballot measure they're like of course i want improved welfare standards but the implicit you know hidden thing there is like i want improved welfare standards for like a 50 percent increase in the cost of pork at the supermarket they may not be willing to make that choice but they're they may not be aware of it Yes, uh, it's definitely true that I don't think every person who votes on pro ballot animal welfare ballot measure is thinking through uh, how much exactly will this cost economically difference in the price of uh, price of meat. Uh, nevertheless, I'd say uh, from our initial look at the research, it, it, it excuse me, look at the data, it doesn't seem like uh, state legislators actually overturn things all that often. This doesn't mean that uh, on certain politically charged topics, it may not be, it may be more uh, more likely for it to happen, but. Um, uh, it, it, it's it, again, it's possible that state legislator would just like overturn it uh, because uh, the constituents would get mad, mad uh, because they didn't realize the effects of the, the thing they, they they passed through. Uh, but I, I just I it's this is a concern, but it's not something not a reason to deprioritize considering uh, ballot measures as an effective tool for uh, for animals. Yeah, yeah, and so there's also been some exciting. Uh, ballot measures on psychedelic decriminalization. So Denver earlier this month or earlier this summer uh, voted to decriminalize uh, psilocybin mushrooms effectively in uh, this city. And there's work to put this on the ballot in Oregon for 2020 for legalizing uh, controlled use of psilocybin, I think, for the entire state. So is this something that like psychedelics legalization, normalization more broadly, uh, rethink priorities has thought about, um, and then specifically within the ballot measure as a tool of getting there? Uh, I've not thought about this topic, so I, I have uh, I have no takes about uh, uh, the probability of succeeding or whether you should even do it. Gotcha. Okay, I, I will provide my own then. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it's probably a good thing. the The fear is that. A city or state, you know, legalizes psychedelics in some capacity. There's like some kind of backlash against it because of like a flood of interest or people, um, and then it becomes like less popular than it was before. 
I don't think that's super likely and the reality is right now is that it's like illegal to alter your consciousness using things that are uh, very, very physiologically safe and, and anti-addictive um, and have been used by human societies for thousands of years. So I think it's probably going to follow the path of marijuana legalization where it happened kind of piecemeal state by state um, and was maybe brought in through medical, uh, the medical paradigm first and then switch over into like a broader legal paradigm um, and is now like very, very popular at the national level and, and likely to be changed in the next few years. Um, I, again, that, I, that's just my hot take. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't have, uh, I don't have much uh, information here, so I'm, I, don't, I can't judge. Yeah, cool. Um, and then moving back to animals, uh, you gave a talk last night and spent a while on invertebrate sentience. So I guess like, why do invertebrates matter? Why does it matter if they are sentient? What does that even mean? Yes. Uh, so uh, to begin with sentience, uh, sentience is uh, um, using a very broad definition here. There, there's uh, consult a different, uh, a lot of philosophers who may come up with many different definitions. Uh, but broadly, I'm going to say sentience in this context is something like uh, there's something into the uh, creature that has experienced it. Something it's like something like to be that creature. Um, in the words of I guess Thomas Nagel, uh, like uh, his famous paper, "What's it like to be a bat?" Um, if it's is it like anything uh, it, like uh, the one way to define this would be in the negative. So like rocks don't have experiences. Right. Uh, but perhaps uh, crickets do. Um, I guess that's uh, the basic uh, question. Uh, and on the question of why invertebrates might matter, it would be that, uh, number one, there are a lot of invertebrates uh, to in first uh, first approximation all animals are invertebrates uh, into like to a second approximation <laughs> basically all animals are invertebrates we're talking over 99.9 percent .9 of animals um, uh, on the planet um, and given that's the case um, invertebrates being a, a very broad category uh, given that's the case I think it's worth taking seriously uh, at least examining the literature to, to see um, is there any evidence that they're sentient? Because assuming assuming they do have some experiences, uh, basically any plausible moral theory would su suggest that uh, they should be given some uh, more consideration. Um, uh, the extent of that more consideration uh, could still be determined uh, by the, perhaps the moral theory you subscribe to. But uh, uh, if they're if they are more agents and they make up most of the animals in the, on the planet, uh, I think it's like quite clear that you should look into whether or not they they do have uh, experiences. Yeah, and, and so examples would be like all insects, arachnids, crabs, uh, nematodes, worms. Yeah, uh, all of that plus uh, octopuses and uh, um, uh, a, a number. I can say basically, uh, basically uh, crabs, uh, octopuses, lobsters, uh, a number of animals that are currently eaten by humans. Another a number of animals, uh, I guess, like. Uh, octopuses that humans think are relatively intelligent, but then uh, I guess the, the class of insects, which are people usually don't see as very intelligent, um, but are extremely numerous uh, and present all over the planet. And some of which we use, and some of which we already farm for various purposes, uh, whether it be honeybees farm for the pollination services uh, or for the honey, or, or uh, crickets, which are starting to be farmed a lot for food. Yeah, and, and so there's no way for us to just like, switch minds with a cricket at the moment. Um, so this is like a really, really difficult question to answer. So what approach have you guys taken to, uh, to answering it? 
yeah so we took a very uh uh theory of conscious neutral approach uh because i don't suspect we we have the right answer to what the correct theory of consciousness is um we wanted to just gather all the scientific evidence so for each of say uh i believe we, we included 12 invertebrate taxa along with three groups of animal excuse me three groups uh which we thought were pretty plausibly uh, like negative base cases. So plants, protists, and prokaryotes, um, along with uh, chickens and cows as uh, cases where we thought, well, these animals are, are most people consider them to be sentient um, and using humans as uh, perhaps the base case uh, as the, the obviously the species which we, we feel the strongest is conscious. Uh, so we, we, took, we took a look at all of these taxa and then um, for each of these taxa, uh, we wanted to look at, say, which of each of this list of, uh, I believe we ended up with 53 uh, potentially sentence indicating features uh, do they possess. Uh, so take a feature like um, uh, classical conditioning, um, which is, uh, uh, it's a simple learning mechanism, uh, which is something that's been de demonstrated in a number of creatures, or uh, say, uh, does an animal have physio physiological responses when they, when they are physically damaged? Uh, and, Take something like that, and on that on that feature, uh, what's the scientific evidence suggest? Uh, does this creature possess it? Is it very unlikely? Is it very likely? Is there any evidence at all? Um, often in the cases, there wasn't any evidence at all. Uh, so we just gathered all that information, uh, put it in, a, in the interactive table where you can filter by the the taxa you you like and the features you you, you want to consider, uh, and just click through and look at uh, all the scientific literature we found, and uh, sometimes some commentary on it, particularly when uh, it's perhaps contentious in the literature. Yeah, I mean, so I've got this table up right now. I thought it was pretty, I mean, just incredible, the, the amount of uh, work you all have done to, to put this together. And, you know, we have honeybees, cockroaches, fruit flies, ants, sea elegans, which is one of the simplest creatures alive, and uh, crabs. And so I was most interested in crabs just because, you know, I think people, most people eat crab. Um, I think even... You know, within the vegetarian vegan world, like most people would not eat crab, but within the effective altruism vegetarian mm -hmm. world, like people have more interesting cutoffs where, you know, they eat bivalves because mm -hmm. they don't have nervous system. It's very unlikely that they're experiencing suffering. Yes. Um, and, you know, crabs seem like a edge case as do like shrimp or, or lobster where it's like possible that, you know, they don't suffer in the same way that a cow or chicken does. Um, but, you know, I was struck by just going through this list and, the answers for crabs on almost all of these uh, possible indicators of sentience is like likely yes or unknown, um, and you know that that does give me some pause, right? Like if uh, oh well, sorry, I forgot there was like a much wider uh, table, so that was just like one side of it. Um, we've also got protists, prokaryotes, as you mentioned, chickens, cows, humans, um, octopus, and so yeah, like when you're looking at this and you're like well i don't think crabs are sentient because like intuition or, or whatever but then you actually look at the evidence you're like well like what what would lead you to believe that they're not sentient and you either just don't know their behavior on that or it's likely that they actually do it um it, it does give me reason reason for pause yeah i i'd say um a couple things on that one i think it is true that uh uh crabs have have uh been the subject of more serious investigation over the last uh, 15 years or so, um, and uh, we've learned a lot more about we we're really taking the wide collective we here. Um, we we've learned a lot more about uh, their uh, their capabilities, their behaviors. Um, uh, I'd also say this is um, 
uh, one, one thing I was thinking when you said uh, it's likely yes or unknown is this is a good example of um, uh, we try to hedge our bet here, but it's, it's possible that like a lot of this is publication bias. So you don't publish unless it's uh, positive results. Uh, mm. if, you, if you run a study on uh, an animal and they don't show something and you would have expected that, you maybe just don't get it published. Um, uh, so that's that's always a consideration when you're looking at uh, research done in the last 15 years. Um, that said, crabs, um, one of the things that I believe crabs were suspected of not being able to do was have uh, uh, of being having flexible behavior in response to noxious stimuli. So it was uh, suggested that say uh, if you shock them, uh, if you shock them, they had one standard response that would happen, and that that was because uh, uh, that's the that's a the, you can make an evolutionary argument for why they would have that response. However, uh, there have been some uh, recent experiments where um, uh, you, you use that same type of setup, but you uh, expose expose the, the the smell of a predator, uh, expose them to the smell of a predator, and you shock them again, and they would uh, not leave their their shell because it's their they're possibly they're weighing weighing the cost of of paying the price of being shocked against uh, the cost of uh, risk of death from a predator. Um, similarly, I think there's been some some experiments around um, uh, crabs and their responses to uh, light environments uh, doing a similar thing. Um, and I guess the you, incre you increase the the shock high enough, they'll they'll leave leave the shell, which suggests they're just making making some trade off. Um, again, this is suggest uh, you can you can tell plausible you can tell a plausible evolutionary story for why this wouldn't why this would happen why this would be evolved uh, without even uh, sentience. I believe uh, crabs possess something like a hundred thousand neurons, um, and. Uh, you could tell a story about like, well, this would happen. Uh, this, 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 I've definitely heard the case that this is still too simple uh, to possibly have uh, to possibly have painful experiences. Uh, in that, um, very broadly, they they probably just uh, it's probably the, the simulacrum of uh, of uh, painful experiences. Uh, but on the other hand, you could tell a, a similar story about the reason they're doing this, the reason they have this pain like the pain like behavior that you expect is because they're experiencing pain. Um, and given that uncertainty, I think it, it'd probably be unwise to uh, completely write them off. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is something I, I looked into the question of like whether lobsters can feel pain because lobsters in, in many cases are boiled alive and they're prepared. And if they can suffer, that's like a pretty terrible thing to do. And um, I'm not the first to think about this. I consider the lobster by David Foster Wallace is a famous essay mm -hmm. uh, thinking about this question. Um, and I remember looking into it and the arguments that they couldn't feel pain were just something like, well, they have a response that looks exactly like pain. Um, and it comes up in situations where they're like physically being damaged. But, you know, they could have evolved so, like to just exhibit that without like having the sentient experience of, of actually suffering. And it's kind of like, well, that seems like a more complicated you know, <laughs> answer to the to the question. And like Occam's razor, you know, set aside the more complicated answer in favor of a simpler one that does the same work um, and put in some dose of uncertainty around the whole thing. And it becomes like, OK, well, if there's any chance or any substantial chance that this is true and that they can feel pain and suffer, it seems like a pretty, pretty terrible thing to do. Yeah, I, I, I don't. 
I probably won't endorse too many specific possible interventions for invertebrates, except for we should probably stop boiling crabs and lobsters alive. Like that seems like a tremendously horrible idea. Uh, the evidence that they 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 experience pain is definitely non negligible. Um, and given that, um, uh, if you put even a five or ten percent chance on it, uh, boiling billions of crabs and lobsters alive every year, it just uh, horrific. I believe uh, Switzerland actually just banned this uh, practice, um, and uh, I think it's something that animal advocates would probably want to consider going forward in the future. Um, on the question of of whether it's uh, uh, yeah, the arguments against being uh, well, they display this pain-like behavior, but actually, um, but actually, it's just a evolved trait. Um, so I'd say I'm I'm sympathetic to the the move uh, because uh, some some of the some of the features on this table uh, are really are done by things that I'd say probably aren't uh, sentient. Uh, so um, like, uh, at the simplest level, an amoeba would move out of the way if you poke it, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I definitely don't think amoebas are sentient. Um, so uh, to, to some extent, some some uh, behaviors just to stay alive, which seem, may seem to make sense from an evolutionary perspective, even if there's no uh, conscious processing of the event. Um, but on the other hand, uh, as you add up more and more of these uh, more and more of these behaviors, as they become more complex and less uh, uh, and more flexible in response to different stimuli, uh, it seems to be the case that you should think that they are the reason that they're, they're exhibiting these behaviors is because they actually are experiencing pain. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking of like evidence in either direction, right? Where there's these experiments where children are shown, you know, squares and rectang rectangles like moving around mm -hmm. and the children by default impute motivation uh, to the, the shapes. And like, it looks like the rectangle is bullying the square and mm -hmm. the children get upset by this. Um, and so we have this tendency to anthropomorphize um, inanimate objects or objects that are or animals that are much different from us and, and assume similar motivations. Um, so that's points in favor of us like, oh, saying that like this behavior that looks like something that we do, it probably feels like that as well. Um, on the flip side, we have this tendency with, you know, chickens, for example, um, to not really think of them as like moral agents uh, worth our consideration because, you know, chickens are kind of weird. <laughs> they, <laughs> they walk around like dinosaurs and they don't um, interact with us the way you know, dogs or other companion animals typically do. Um, that being said, I, I don't think there's really good evidence to believe that chickens aren't capable of, of suffering um, any more so than a dog or a cat. Yeah, um, the the tension there between those two instincts is very real. Uh, it's something that uh, I guess we consider a lot when trying to assess the uh, assess this issue. Um, it is true that uh, it's very easy to anthropomorphize uh, animals to have uh, more human-like behaviors than they really do, or just to assume that the reason why they're doing this thing that's kind of like what humans do is because they really are like humans, uh, fundamentally at a base level. On the other hand, it's it's also true that there are a ton of there are a ton of people uh, who 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 see the biological differences between us as a insurmountable boundary uh, who say can look at the same type of behavior that perhaps particularly in mammals and birds uh, perhaps done for the same physiological reasons and suggest no really there's nothing going on there uh, it, it's all it's all just uh, evolutionary programming all the way down in uh, well in some sense it is all evolutionary programming, but um, it's all just uh, it's always just reflexive, and there's not there's no internal processing going on at all. Um, so, uh, waiting between those, 
weighing between those is just difficult. I think it's inherently part of trying to assess uh, animal experiences because we can't we can't question them verbally and have them report the answer to uh, how like like how painful is X. Like you, you can't you can't run that experiment. Uh, and given that it's always going to be somewhat uncertain, uh, what uh, what um, whether an animal is actually experiencing pain, unless and until we reach a stage where not only do we have a correct theory of uh, what generates human consciousness, but we have a correct theory of what could generate consciousness in other animals. Uh, so uh, it maybe maybe not just solve the heart problem consciousness uh, uh, in the abstract for humans, but also perhaps for and what else could it do? Uh, or excuse me, what else could could uh, solve this problem? Uh, so this is a extraordinarily difficult uh, inquiry. In uh, um, in the meantime, uh, before we solve that problem, we have to make decisions about how to live. Uh, and given that, I think uh, there's considerable uncertainty. Um, you you can you can make theoretical arguments about why it must definitely be the case that um, uh, it's given this behavior, they must be conscious or they must not be conscious. Uh, but I think the more reasonable position is to uh, preserve some uncertainty. Uh, but if you do have that uncertainty, uh, and we're not talking about uh, minuscule numbers here, uh, it seems possible to perhaps include invertebrates, uh, many invertebrates inside your uh, circle of moral concern. Yeah, and, and so what? how did your kind of thoughts on this change from before the research was done to after it completed like what are the important takeaways from you know this very preliminary but still very ambitious uh, research yeah uh so uh this varies by both species and uh excuse me by taxa and uh by feature uh so some of the features i originally thought perhaps they're more important than i think now uh so some navigational behaviors uh which are sometimes uh, seen as a sign of intelligence uh say uh the ability to solve certain types of mazes um is often used as uh perhaps a, a sign of uh intellectual feat but it, it turns out that uh some protists some, some single-celled protists uh can solve some types of mazes uh which suggests to me that uh maybe these things don't matter very much uh similarly with around classical conditioning um uh there have been experiments running classical conditioning in things that are clearly not attached to a brain uh, whether it be the severed tail of a rat or uh the detached leg of a cockroach um and that piece of uh, that piece of animal would display classical con conditioning, uh, suggesting that this just isn't a very valuable metric. Um, on the on the um, on the species level, uh, I was I was perhaps most surprised by some of the things that uh, honeybees could do. Um, uh, uh, some of the behaviors are uh, around. Um, I believe they uh, there's some some evidence they self-administer uh, analgesics. Uh, so uh, these are painkillers, uh, things that we believe are painkillers in humans. Uh, uh, again, that that word may be uh, back in the question, but uh, uh, very broadly, if you injure uh, if injure a honeybee, honeybee and you give them uh, uh, feed laced with opiates. Uh, they would take that feed preferential, preferentially over uh, feed without it, uh, suggesting that uh, they're trying to recover. Um, all right, and uh, similarly, when you give give uh, animals these type of things, they just display less uh, pain-like behaviors, so less limping or or wound guarding, uh, etc. Um, and because of this, I I, I guess uh, not very surprisingly, I didn't I wasn't that informed about 
uh, scientific evidence. So honeybees before this, but I'd say I updated positively towards honeybees for sure. Uh, similarly with uh, octopuses before I uh, engaged in this. Of course, I was somewhat aware of uh, octopuses' ability to like uh, to actually solve type of, some type of puzzles, uh, but I was more unaware of the some some of the perhaps some of the most interesting anecdotes I, I, I read about them uh, in Peter Godfrey Smith's book uh, Other Minds, uh, in which he. Uh, he described uh, main scenarios where uh, lab technicians uh, have, say, a lab technician uh, walked into her lab one day and uh, octopus was like waiting for her and uh, intentionally threw uh, some low, low rate food on the ground in front of her. Um, which, which again, this is the anecdote, um, but uh, additionally for um, for um, uh, for scientific evidence, um, they just seem very intelligent in a way that's kind of difficult to uh difficult to square without them having uh some conscious experiences yeah i mean so they'll like flood their tanks and escape from labs and turn the lights off and do all kinds of like activities that would be indicative of intelligence right yes uh additionally they um uh they can uh follow prey outside of their line of sight uh, so if something leaves their vision, uh, they can still uh, capture it, uh, which is, uh, again, something that uh, perhaps uh, sufficiently small human children can't do. Um, or uh, some, some, animals that, some animals that we probably take for granted are conscious if they lose sight of their prey. If it goes outside of their vision, they might, they might completely lose it. Um, and that type of, uh, I believe it's uh, sometimes called detour behavior, um, is... Um, uh, indicative that they have perhaps a ongoing uh, hold on something that's not immediately in their conscious experience. Yeah, I mean, even when I uh, was a pescatarian, I, I stopped eating octopus for the same reason as eating stopped eating like cows or chickens. If anything, the evidence is that they're smarter. Yeah, octopuses seem very impressive. Uh, their biological distance from us uh, suggests it's going to be just difficult, just inherently, to figure out what uh, what they what experiences would be analogous to to those in humans uh nevertheless um uh like an animal that has 60 percent of their neurons outside of their brain uh is just very structurally different from humans in a way that's going to be difficult to assess um it's going to be difficult to assess um like with great like with absolute certainty that yeah this this animal is having uh experiences the same way i am uh but perhaps uh they still are having experiences even if it's not the way same way you are yeah, some somebody hypothesized recently that octopus were uh, from a different planet. <laughs> Their evolutionary history is just so divergent from our own um, that they thought they came here on like an asteroid or something. <laughs> um, this is turning to Joe Rogan right now. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't, I don't have, uh, I don't have much thoughts on that specific topic. Uh, panspermia is a, a logical possibility. Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest it just for octopuses. Uh, I would say another thing that comes to mind about octopuses is uh, they, they seem to have flexible tool use. Um, they, there's uh, recent evidence, uh, videos even of them using uh, discarded human coconut shells as, uh, like as housing. Uh, but they, they, they grab it, which is from nearby the beach, and just carry it back to the layer to later use um it's kind of awkward to use and obviously octopuses haven't evolved on the time scale of uh of humans discarding coconut shells um you can make some argument that it's close enough to some natural thing in their environment but not really so it's again uh, octopuses seem to be able to use tools in addition to like open jars or escape from jars or uh disguise themselves uh, their, their range of abilities is truly seems impressive 
Um, and even though coming in, I had a relatively high opinion of octopuses, I've definitely, uh, I guess, up- upgraded my eyes. I think that they're sentient. Yeah, you know, it's, it's really interesting work. Um, I, w- I wanted to wrap on something that I think will be of great interest to people within the effective altruism community, but for everyone else, they might not be quite as interested. And that is the results of the effective altruism survey, which is something Rethink Priorities uh, runs themselves. Mm-hmm. And um, I was just going through the results of the 2018 survey. 2019, I think, is still being analyzed. Yes. Uh, the 2019 survey, I believe, uh, just closed. So um, it's uh, analysis would is scheduled to begin. I think like Monday. Cool, cool. And and so, yeah, looking through the 2018 survey, just like some quick statistics on the demographics of the group. Um, very very young. Half the people on the survey were between 20 and 29. Uh, almost a quarter between 30 and 39. Um, Two thirds self-identified as male, and 83 percent had a college degree or higher. And within those, uh, the most popular majors were computer science, math, philosophy, and economics in that order. Um, to people within effective altruism, this probably is like, yeah, of course, obviously <laughs> this is true. Um, and 78% self-identified as white, 7% as Asian, 3% as Hispanic, and less than 1% as black. Um, and 80% identifi- identified as atheist, agnostic, or non-religious, and about 40% identified as vegan or vegetarian. But even the majority of meat eaters were reducitarian of, of some sort. Um, and then, yeah, 61% identified as with the left broadly, uh, with a little bit more of that group identifying as center left than left. Uh, 20% identified as other NA or preferring not to answer. And then, like, the rest were like libertarians, followed by center right and right. Um, so, yeah, like, this is just kind of the overview. Did any of that, like, surprise you? What are your thoughts on, like, the demographics of the group and, uh, you know, what direction we need to go in? Um, the demographics didn't really surprise me because they're relatively similar to past EA survey results. Uh, so, uh, that's roughly what they look like previously. Uh, again, uh, given this is going out uh, roughly the same way, it's still a uh, self-selection survey. It's, this is not random. Obviously, EA is not sufficiently large that you really could do a large sample size, uh, it's truly random. But um, yeah, the, the demographics don't really surprise me. It, if you're thinking more about, well, what does this, what do these demographics say about what we should do? Um, uh, there are a number of things we could do. Um, I have some some takes on that domain, not, they're not necessarily the best ideas, uh, but there, there's some things where we could do. Uh, it's it, the case that if we, if the vast, vast majority of our, um, uh, or of uh, uh, the people are are young college graduates who have a STEM background. Uh, there's very possibly a lot more people who would be interested in the type of ideas we're pushing uh, that uh, perhaps not in that background. Like, uh, I mean, in, even if they're young college graduates, uh, there are lots of young college graduates who are interested in doing things effective, like doing charity charity effectively, and um, these type of ideas that just didn't happen to run to the same social circles where they heard about us. Yeah, I mean, I'll push back a little bit just in that I think there's a ton of people out there that want to do good. Um, where I see people getting off of the effective altruism train is when the imperative to do it effectively comes at the expense of just kind of normal <laughs> expectations about what doing good might mean. And so to make that more concrete, you know, almost everybody I speak to about doing good will mention somebody who's doing this great charity in like Newark or whatever. And, you know, the EA kind of response is like, well, if you really want to help people the most effectively, you should 
uh, go to sub-Saharan Africa where your dollars go 100 times further than they do within the United States. Um, and so that kind of like pushed for maximum effectiveness at the expense of a local connection or a you know personal kind of cause area connection, I think really can turn people off if they're not trained in the way to think about things like very quantitatively, which would appeal to people who are computer science, math, philosophy. Yeah, I I definitely don't approve that message messaging strategy of uh, accosting someone when they suggest that uh, I'm, I'm personally working on on X, uh, and you say no, actually you should be working on on Y. Even oh yeah, much I'm not saying you should do this. It's oh. just like the push would be in that direction, right? Of like, if you're trying to help people, you should go to the places where your dollars would go the furthest. Um, yeah. And then even within those, you'd want to look for like randomized control trials that support mm-hmm. that intervention being effective. Um, and like, if you aren't pushing that in some capacity, whether it's like subtly in conversation or through writing um, or through asking you know questions that kind of provoke people in that direction, then it's kind of like, where is the EA angle, yes. right? And where, where's the effectiveness in that? Uh, so yeah, I think it's true where if you, if you, if as uh, effective altruism tries to expand, uh, uh, the groups they're, you're going to push into people who are, who do have less experience, uh, perhaps analyzing things quantitatively. Uh, nevertheless, I th- still think it's true that the typical person, when they try to, when they when they think about giving to charity, the thing they want to have done, like like in some sense, some people, of course, uh, obviously there's a uplift to yourself sometimes when you like yeah, I did something I did something good. But ultimately, people want to help other people. They want to help animals. Uh, and uh, if if that is the case, uh, I don't I don't think the message necessarily has to come off. Uh, as uh, perhaps um, uh, confrontational, it could be more expanding the the vision of what's possible in their eyes. Uh, they, I think, for a lot of people, they just don't don't realize this is a thing that you can do. Uh, like, is it really true? Uh, a lot of people express skepticism that you actually can improve the lives of people in the developing world uh, through donations. Um, and uh, one of the things about effective altruism is, is perhaps a suggestion that no, really, you really can. Um, and uh, if, if you don't believe me, I can I can help you find like work through the evidence and see that yes, this is possible. Uh, and uh, given that type of approach, I I I, I don't imagine that uh, it has to necessarily be uh, uh, a, a radical shock to uh, the typical giver. Um, that said, of course, people have their connections to their local communities. People have uh, the things they like to give to. Uh, but one of the things about uh, EA I like a lot is it doesn't have to be um, it doesn't have to be a say, oh, you must stop giving to your uh, local school. You can also just do that and give to uh, charities that are super cost effective. Um, and I think a lot of people are perceptive to that type of message. Yeah, a friend of mine very recently told me about his plan to start giving to effective charities. And he said that he was going to give 75% of his donations to you know highly effective, like give well, recommended charities, um, and then have a 25%, he called it, I think, like his empathy fund, where he would say, connected to things that were local in his community or like you know if a family member or like a loved one was affected by a disease or you know mental illness or whatever it might be um giving to those types of causes to just stay connected and in a naive sense you could say well it's better to give everything to the highly effective charities but if you don't sustain that behavior then it's Mm -hmm. actually not better at all um and so if this like 25 percent to local things keeps him going for his entire life uh, then it's like a far better uh, choice strategically. Yeah, um, it's definitely the case that um, you have to meet people where they are, and also, uh, I guess, uh, 
perhaps strangely, uh, if you're being, if you're taking a very consequentialist approach to uh, improving the lives of others, uh, sometimes meeting people where they are means accepting that the the most consequentialist thing they're going to do is seventy uh, percent of what you want instead of one hundred percent. And if that's the case, uh, that's a lot better than zero. So um, yeah, I mean that's it's great. It's great to hear people uh, doing things like that. It's um, you're, you're not going to convince everyone to to go 100% in on EA. Like everyone's not going to self-identify, but we definitely can expand our message to uh, a much broader group of people who are sympathetic to just improving uh, global health more generally, improving the lives of animals, and uh, making sure we don't all don't die in a, some extended risk. Like there are a lot of people who have those opinions, like those things are good, um, and uh, EA can do. Uh, I, I think. EA can reach a lot of those people whether or not they uh, in the future necessarily identify as effective altruists. Yeah, I mean, so an interesting example of this is uh, Give Directly sends unconditional cash transfers to some of the poorest people in the world. And uh, it's very explicit. Like, the, the two big things are like identifying really people who are the poorest and getting as much of that money to them as effectively as possible. Um, but they recently started this program where when there's a disaster, there's a ton of money that goes into disaster relief, but it goes to organizations that are sometimes not very effective at getting the supplies there to the people that need it. Um, and it turns out that just like in global poverty interventions, um, in disaster relief, just sending disaster victims unconditional cash is more effective than most things. And so Give Directly, I think, partnered with Google after one of the recent hurricanes to send, I think, like $3 million to, um, to disaster victims. And so in one sense, it's actually not in Give Directly's mandate to send money to victims of uh, disasters within the United States because those people do not qualify to be like the poorest people in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you don't look at it as cannibalizing you know, uh, donations to Sub-Saharan Africa, but instead donations to the Red Cross or other organizations that only are going to operate domestically, you're only capturing a bit of the quote-unquote market for uh, disaster donations, then it's actually just a good thing because you're making it more effective and you're bringing that effectiveness mandate to uh, parts of the aid world that aren't currently being affected by it. Yeah, actually, I think uh, I think this is a great idea. We give you a right way to do this. Um, uh, if there's a space where you could do some more good, um, it's not necessarily uh, assuming it doesn't drastically hurt your your main cause. There, um, uh, improving improving the areas where people are actually already donating seems like a, a really good idea. Obviously, there's the uh, extreme case of the what happened after the earthquake in Haiti uh, several years ago, uh, in which uh, I believe there were several ProPublica reports about. Uh, the Red Cross getting something like several hundred million dollars and only building a few uh, a few permanent homes out of that, all that money. Um, I think they their their reasoning was that they had spent uh, a considerable amount on uh, considerable amount on um, uh, temporary shelters. Um, but if you can turn that money into perhaps. Uh, or even not necessarily take the money away from Red Cross, but even encourage them to be better about the way they're spending their money by having competition for those resources. Uh, uh, and of course, uh, give directly is uh, thrust here around uh, giving people cash in, in disasters or something I think I, I became aware of actually around the same time uh, for unrelated reasons. Uh, but it just 
physically like if you think about what this means it's just physically difficult to ship goods somewhere where you can send cash digitally uh which has basically no shipping costs uh, effectively none uh relative to uh physically sending goods um so yeah i think uh getting giver directly involved in this type of space is probably uh, a good idea and then, and on top of the immediate good it does to for uh for those hurricane victims uh, i bet those people who when they they found out about give directly some of those people were probably like hey giving to people who are extremely poor is probably also a good idea so it's um i mean it's like a win-win yeah totally um so i guess j- jumping back to the survey you know it's it's clear from this that effective altruism is not a snapshot of you know the united states for example demographically it, it, it is not um <laughs> do you think that's a, an issue. Is it something that uh, the movement should really be thinking about more and, and taking more active steps to rectify? Yes. Uh, as to what those active steps are, uh, I have not done the research on what exactly those should be. Uh, I definitely think there's just there's a ton of room to, to, to go around. Uh, even if you're going to say, well, most people are going to get involved with these type of social movements when they're relatively young, uh, still nothing like the demographics of uh, young people. So. Um, um, you you have to uh, you have to think that um, you can do a lot better job, and also I, I want to emphasize that like uh, this applies globally. Uh, so uh, EA, um, as much as uh, as much as as an American, uh, a lot of things are uh, centric. Uh, there there's a uh, plenty of reason to think. Well, in 20, 20 25 years, uh, you're going to want a lot of people who are, who are involved in effective altruism to be all over the planet. Uh, there there are now, of course, there are people. Uh, uh, people in the organizations and people who are interested in effective altruism who work uh, all over the world. And if you're going to think think about having a sustainable movement over a period of decades, it's going to take having having people who look like the the groups you're trying to help. Sometimes, yeah, uh, this is an issue within Democratic Socialists of America as well, DSA, uh, where you know DSA is much more explicitly trying to build like a multiracial um, you know coalition that includes like every every person of every identity category because there's valuable perspective in in, in all those uh, viewpoints and like one of the active steps that uh but then it ends up being like a lot of young white guys um and one of the active steps that are taken within meetings which the first time i experienced it was a i was a little like just surprised by was um called progressive stack so when there's a period of questioning or discussion um the order of like who speaks is kind of determined by the underrepresentedness of that group so if uh there are like five white guys that want to speak and like one woman the woman speaks first and then like alternates um and it's based on the yeah like like i mentioned underrepresentedness so like i think like black men are actually less represented than white women within dsa and so to some people like this seems like uh identity politics gone wild and and uh there was like the reaction to the dsa conference where people were being like policed about their saying guys or whatever or, or making too much noise and there's obviously like the uh cynical attempt to undermine the movement but there's still this idea of like you know, at first I was taken aback just because it was just so explicit. Um, but then at the same time, if those viewpoints you think meaningfully differ on average from uh, the ones that are most likely to be heard, then it's a way to ensure that, like, even if there aren't many people of a certain identity group at a meeting, that perspective um, is, is far more likely to be heard. And, and with an effective altruism, you know, uh, Will McCaskill gave a talk and the first uh, 10 questions were all all from guys. Um, there were a few women's hands up in the room and like the question 
answerer, like the person passing the mic, could have done a little bit more to seek out a variety of perspectives in, in the room. Uh, so that's a lot there. I'm wondering mm -hmm. what your thoughts are on that. Uh, yeah. So I, I guess very broadly, I'm not, I'm not uh, that familiar with uh, this particular aspect of uh, DSA uh, handling of uh, speaking, uh, but uh, I can say. In general, in EA and elsewhere, uh, diversity of perspectives is often very helpful. Um, it's I believe there's some research on diversity of perspectives uh, being helpful to companies, um, and that making sure those diversity of perspectives are being are being heard uh, as uh, potentially uh, like invaluable to team building. Um, uh, that said, within EA, I don't I don't have a I don't have a sense of if. Uh, uh, to what extent the their uh, say like the cause interests or ideological interests uh, actually differs based on uh, demographics, um, and to the to the extent that um, uh, to the extent that like perhaps it's not the case, this is be less of a concern. Uh, this is something I think would be interesting perhaps to look at. Uh, I, I have no idea whether or not um, uh, taking that type of uh, uh, that type of approach would be. Um, uh, desirable. Um, uh, I'd say uh, I'd like to keep. Uh, I'd like to probably perhaps focus more on uh, getting more people involved who haven't been done so, and you have to worry less about doing some type of uh, uh, explicit counterweighting. Um, you could you could just plan about. Uh, bringing more people into the movement um, so that uh, you're not in a situation where it's 70-30 male or you're not in a situation where uh, minority voice, voices aren't being heard because they're just they're just in the room because you you sought them out and you, you tried to get them there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, it can also be a bit tricky in situations where like getting, you know, your first black members when there are none in the first place like that, that can be you know particularly challenging, right? Like that initial hurdle. Um, yeah, so I think uh, this is something that I'm an organizer of the New York chapter, and, and we think about it, but it's not totally clear you know, what, what steps to take, as, as you mentioned. Um, one of the other pieces within the survey was um, how welcoming do people find effective altruism? And overall, people tend to find it fairly welcoming. Um, there's a difference between men and women in the mean answer here, uh, but it wasn't that women found it unwelcoming. They were just more likely to rate it as neutral. Um, than men, and there was no like statistically significant relationship between welcomingness and, and race, although the very small number of people reporting uh, from non-white backgrounds probably makes it hard to tease out those relationships. Mm -hmm. um, so it's definitely not like, it, there'd be a very large cause for alarm if like there were huge disparities in how different groups found uh, effective altruism to, to be welcoming or, or not. Um, and it's something that, like, yeah, we're, we're always thinking about and try to go out of our way. Whenever somebody new shows up that we don't know, just saying hello and introducing ourselves, giving a quick background and, like, trying to, you know, ha have them meet other people that might share their interests. Yeah. Um, actually, uh, as the as a co-organizer of the Chicago meetup, um, I can say this is definitely something I think a lot about, uh, making sure people who show up uh, for the first time feel welcome and that that uh, you hear what they have to say, that you uh, hear what they're interested in, and that you try very hard to get them to come back. Um, it's it's a challenge. I mean, I'm not, uh, I guess I don't have uh, much extended experience uh, organizing these types of events, but um, it's, um, 
it's uh, something that's uh, constantly on my mind as a group organizer, making sure people uh, feel welcome. Um, and I agree that I, I'm I'm happy I'm happy that there aren't large divergences in this space. And I guess I guess finally I can I had uh, I am in fact black. Uh, so um, I've I've always felt welcome at, at events, and obviously I, I'm uh, end of one. Um, and uh, I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't put too much stock in my personal experiences because for a variety of reasons. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I think EA could uh, again. I'd probably pivot to more like it's it's more about the more about the pipeline than the the experience. Yeah, yeah, that, I think that makes a lot of sense. It's something that um, I mean, kind of by definition, you're selecting a bunch of like really kind, caring people that mm-hmm. have taken time out of their days and and taking money out of their pockets and. Uh, shows in their careers around like trying to help more people um so it does make things a lot easier because there's like this genuine effort to um to solve the problems and and to be welcoming and i think um i don't know there, there are other communities of people who are like very smart very quantitative who might be more resistant to to this type of um efforts because you know it could be construed certain ways like there's definitely risks of like representation for representation's sake or like tokenism Mm -hmm. um and what you really care about is like meaningfully different perspectives um, yes and and i think you know as you mentioned there there are very good reasons to to believe that diversity does matter in that perspective um and yeah i mean i think especially early on there was a there's a bit of a risk within effective altruism of like the weirder ideas that appeal to very smart people that are very like quantitatively uh, oriented to mm-hmm. kind of like eat the movement um and some people have described artificial intelligence safety risk as uh this idea that eats smart people um and it, it may actually be the most important thing and like the thing that we should <laughs> primarily care about but unless we're 100 percent certain of that having a broader set of viewpoints um and people who do care about animals and care about uh, poverty and, and health and you know whatever um that those perspectives are continuing to stay alive within the movement yeah, um, I'd say uh, I guess one of the reasons I'm running a research or research organization uh, that doesn't specifically focus on one cause is because I am uncertain about what the best cause is, uh, or even if that concept really makes that much sense. Or rather, you should be playing a diversified perspective game where you uh, you invest in X, Y, and Z, and uh, you get some good returns from some of those, and some of the returns may uh, fluctuate over time uh, throughout those different groups. Um, and yeah, I mean, I- I've heard people make this argument against AI safety, and uh, it's... And like you can you can say that you can make that argument about any idea that gains sufficient popularity with any demographic. Um, uh, um, I think there are genuine genuine reasons to be concerned about uh, artificial intelligence uh, as an existential risk. Um, and uh, in that uh, is true that uh, it's generally going to be, be the case that people who have a quantitative background are be more drawn to that type of uh, that type of uh, topic. Um, but this is also true of um, say like. Uh, People who worked more in like homeless shelters may be more appeal, appealing, maybe more drawn into things involving like global poverty because they've seen firsthand uh, what poverty had. And um, it would be it would be a strange argument to me to suggest, well, uh, if if the EA happened in an alternative universe where EA was largely made up of people who had that type of background, um, that no, we shouldn't care about global poverty. Like that, that would be a very bizarre argument to me. Yeah, this is kind of tangential, but I, I just remembered uh, Bernie Sanders. I think his initial election in Vermont, the New York Times headline is like, new like Vermont mayor 
elected with bias towards poor, uh, <laughs> which it's just a hilarious thing to, to see written in print. And it's like, oh, how dare he? You know, those big poor is, you know, coming again for our, our tax dollars. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm unfamiliar with that, but I am familiar with the general concept of uh, uh, uh People who who uh, look at those who are in need and think, well, it's your, if you're interested in that, in that particular demographic, it must be because you're biased. Yeah, it's it's like, oh, I'm sorry, I have a bias for helping, uh, you know, people or animals or whoever that are neglected and, and suffering quite a bit. That's mm-hmm. that seems like a a good bias to have. Yeah, uh, the bias towards helping the most people or animals you can is is that's the bias I'm all in for. Yeah, I think it's called utilitarianism. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I guess uh, I just want to wrap up, but um, you know, one thing that was mentioned last night, Rethink Priority is uh, quite young. It's produced a lot of really great content that if, uh, I found really illuminating to, to read myself. And you are a charity that, that takes donations. Mm-hmm. Um, and would you care to share like how much uh, your annual budget is right now? Our annual budget for 2019 is about... Uh, um, four hundred and fifty thousand um, dollars for twenty twenty. Uh, we're looking to expand uh, in twenty twenty one going forward. Um, so uh, we're going to be doing a lot of fundraising in the year. This is around the time. If you if you like our work, uh, if you think our work is valuable, uh, you can go to our website uh, and uh, to donate. Um, uh, if you like our work, you can sign up to our newsletter uh, to follow up with everything we're doing. Um, and uh, yeah, we're we're a team of uh, ten people, uh, eight full time equivalent. Um, and we're looking to expand, improve our operations staff, improve, uh, uh, get uh, additional researchers when it's relevant, uh, and even more essentially just uh, get more hours and uh, keep keep the staff we do have happy. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, we're looking forward to doing that. I, I think we've we've uh, done uh, well so far in our short run, and I think there's just so much room to grow and so much more research to be done. Um, and that I think we're well placed to do. Yeah, I mean the output. Uh especially given the age and the number of staff and the budget is, is really incredible. And I think uh, at smaller organizations, you can have a much bigger impact with uh, your dollars. So I, I definitely recommend uh, your work uh, from what I've seen so far as a good charitable uh, target. Thank you. Uh, I also think it's a good, good charitable target and like, I endorse this message. Cool. Um, Marcus, any other final thoughts for us? Uh, not really. Um, I guess I I just emphasize that uh, I think in the world of effective altruism, um, uh, uh, the reason I'm doing this is I think uh, EAs are giving tens of millions of dollars, and they should uh, like collectively we should think very carefully about the way we're spending that money, and I, that's the entire reason for my organization. Cool, cool. Well, you're doing great work, and uh, thank you for joining us, Marcus. Thank you for having me. This has been The Most Interesting People I Know. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes. I don't know why this matters, but every other podcast I listen to asks people to do this. Music is by me. Podcast design is by Jacob Abrowitz. I hope you enjoyed the show.